much new stuff. We are, our studio is looking pretty fabulous. I'll put a picture on our webpage. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. And Steve yesterday spent, so... Steve has been a busy boy. You have been. So we got our new table for, for um, you know, for with our mics and all the kind of stuff. And he put a cowl on it. It's now trimmed and, and stapled then underneath. Underneath, there are these super rad lights that come in like a million and two different colors. Right now, they're set to red. And we'll put a picture on the new website, nourofyourlife.com that you can go visit and see it. And I got some cool new air plant vertebrae holder thingies. Maybe we should, that's something that we can maybe do is take them on a tour of the studio, put that on the website. Maybe so, but you know what? The lights, you know, it, it may look, but it, it puts me in like a mood or- it, it, A mood? I don't want to say like in a character or anything like that. But no, it just, you are- It gets me- You are a character. It, it gets me in the- it gets me in the mood for the podcast. It just gives a whole different it does. atmosphere and feeling. Yeah. It's totally fun. It's fun, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, that might be fun. We'll we'll do, can you post videos? On, you can post videos on the website, right? Mm, I don't know if this uh, webpage will support Well, video. I will try to do a video. If not, we'll just do a, a photo, like a photo still gallery thing of a tour of the studio. And you can see all the super neat things that we have. Um, if there's anything in particular, you know, we mentioned last week that we have a new website. If there's anything in particular that you guys want to see on the website, let us know. And we'll, we'll maybe add that on there. Well, you know what? Let me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we got, it just reminded me though. We have, we got a message from a gentleman through Facebook and it's all in French and we've translated it fairly well, but there's like one word and we can't quite grasp the meaning of what he's asking of us. So if you send us an email, please do your best to Google translate it or into American English for me. Um, or I mean, we, we can do the best that we can, but just know that we may not be able to do like the whole, there's this one word and we just don't know what it means. And that's kind of a key part of, yeah, we got everything else that said that he's looking for his spiritual father. Um, but then there was some other word that we didn't know what it was. And so we don't so I'm really sorry know the context of that's this. That's you. Please try again because we we don't we we didn't figure it out. Yeah, we couldn't figure that one out. Speaking of friends online, we have a couple of new followers. So I am going to welcome them this week. Oh. Even well, though that's normally so we're something go out of you do. Order. Okay. We are. Well that's maybe right. I'll Sometimes. do the sources tonight. No. You okay. did the sources one other time. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how, I want to say that's BAMPTS. B-A-M-N-T-S. 17. 17. B-J-B-J. And Boxer Mentality and Mimi. So oh, welcome, new friends. Welcome. And help us out. Yeah, like I said, if you guys, if there's Share. anything. Oh yeah, oh yeah. See, this is why I should let you do it. Now, all of those people, you have to tell five friends about an hour of your life, and then they'll listen to us, and we'll have all new followers next week. And share the episode with your friends. Yeah. You can find it on the front page of anhourofyourlife.com, this week's episode. Yeah, there's two ways to contact us. Yeah, and like I said, and we'll get to that at the end, but like I said, if there's anything that you guys want to see on the website, let us know, Um, because we're kind of, you know, it's a brand new baby website. The most common question has been merch. When are we going to have some merch? We tried doing merch and nobody wanted it. So uh, unless you guys really- well, we got rid of it all. We did, um, but we mostly like gave it away to people. Uh, so that's something that is possible. We might have some merch. We might have uh, some merch with special things on it. Uh, maybe we can do like a Rupert- a Rupert t-shirt or like a Rupert sticker or something um, in addition to our logo tee. So we'll, we're, it, we'll think about it. But uh, other than merch, if there's anything that you guys want to see on the website, shout out. Fire let us away. Know. Yep. All right. All right. You ready? So, yeah. Well, so what is our topic tonight? I know, but I'm just saying, yeah. <laughs> so our topic tonight is um, 
was kind of inspired by a TV show. Uh, I don't know. You know, um, American Horror Story. It is not one of your favorite shows. I, um, I watched the first season. You watched the first season. And then it season. got too yeah. weird for me. I have, I have some that I like and some that I don't like. But one of the episodes, one of the seasons was called American Horror Story Freak Show. And that's not where I got this from. But that, sh- that, ep- or that season was based on um, the, the man that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, his name was Grady Styles Jr., and he was uh, the fourth child of Grady F. Styles Sr. and his wife Edna. Uh, Grady Jr. was born in 1937. Now his dad, Grady Styles Sr., came from a long line of people with ectrodactyly. I'm glad you said that one, and not me. <laughs> Ectrodactyly involves the deficiency or absence of one or more central digits of the hand or foot and is also known as a hand split um, or a a split hand or split foot malformation. And so the hands and the feet of people with ectrodactyly, um, who are called ectrodactyls, are often described as claw-like and they may include only the thumb and one finger, usually the little finger, ring finger, or kind of a combination of the two. Um, Papa Styles was born was involved with the circus sideshow. They came from a long, I think it was like eight generations or something of ectrodactyls. So there's a long family history. So of this I can assume it's hereditary. Yes. Okay. There's a long family history of this malformation. So uh, Grady Styles Senior was involved with the circus sideshow, um, and his son became part of the act when he was only seven. And now Which is kind of a trend with what I'm going to get into. Yeah. So they they build themselves as um he was Grady Styles Jr. was known as Lobster Boy. Uh and he had a particular Let's just say, let's throw this out right now. This may not sound like the most politically correct um yeah, we'll get to episode, that. but we'll, we'll get, get to, to that. that. Um, so he had a particularly bad case of ectrodactyly and his feet were also malformed. So he had hand and foot malformations. And as a result, he had a lot of difficulty walking and he was typically dependent on a wheelchair. However, he was extremely strong uh, because he learned to pull himself up and maneuver around using only his arms from a very young age. Now we're going to talk more about Grady Styles Jr. later on in the show, but to kind of provide a little bit of background on his life and his lifestyle, we wanted to kind of go behind the scenes of the freak shows. Um, and and like Steve mentioned, we're, that term freak show is in the 21st century very politically incorrect on the surface, although you said, you'll, you, you know, we'll yeah. talk about that that's not necessarily a bad thing. And freak shows are still alive and well in some parts of America today. Well, all righty. So now, before we get into the story of Grady Styles, let's first talk a little bit about the history of Sideshow, the Sideshow performers. And we're going to start off, which, while they're on the road, they travel, but they a lot of them come back to their home. It's like a home base. It's Yeah, their home base. Yeah. So during the show, as, as we mentioned, we're going to refer to these performers as freaks. So please don't read into what we're saying or how we're being disrespectful this is what this is how they refer to themselves right and so they do not take it as being disrespectful or people making fun of them that this is yeah it's their choice it's it's like when you call um you know the old-fashioned term for a midget they now prefer to be called little people generally people who perform in sideshows preferred they are fine with the term freaks like that is their preferred term as far as we have been able to find if yeah. if you are one of these performers and you're listening and we are totally wrong on that let us know yeah but from everything we've read and we looked through a lot of sources mm-hmm. that this is the term that they prefer right so again we're not trying to be disrespectful we're just trying to use the vernacular and their preferred terminology of how they describe themselves yep so that being said let's talk about gibsonton or I'm going to refer to it as Gibtown. So Gibtown began attracting carnival workers in the late 1930s. Why? It was warm. <laughs> it's in Florida. And yep. the winters up north aren't that pleasant. In the golden days of the American carnival, all roads led to Gibtown, Florida. 
at the end of the carnival season. So this self-defined little town of about 14,900 people is what? located about 12 miles south of Tampa, Florida. And it, it it's the industry capital for the traveling performers. I mean, it's the, actually bigger than I thought it was. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that many people, but it, it's set up to take care of these, the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the people that travel and do that. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So Kearney town or Gibb town is a well-known place where everyone who had run away the, with the circus went. Gibb town's first settlers were the giant and his wife, the half woman, and they ran a campsite, a bake shop, and the fire department. That's handy. You yeah. run a campsite and the fire department. Get to get and the post office. You're ready to take care of those campfires yeah. and they get out of hand. Yeah, so the post office catered to the little people with extra low counters. So, I mean, they were actually ahead of, like, the American disabilities with mm-hmm. that. So yeah, they really they were. were. They were leading with this stuff. So, they they catered. The post office had extra low counters so they could reach and do their business. The beer hall had custom, this sounds kind of funny, they had custom-built chairs for the fat ladies and for the tallest man. Florida enabled them, and they set up special zoning regulations which allowed the residents to keep and train their exotic animals in the gardens and and in the town. And this is still in effect today. And it's still in effect today, and that's why it's a popular place. I mean, I guess Florida recognized that they they needed this and this mm-hmm. was their livelihood so florida made exceptions and they they created this zoning law so that they could do this They're- gibsonton is also not too far from i believe it's the ripley nash like ripley's museum or not ripley um oh barnum it's either i think it's barnum's museum yeah i think his is somewhere down there, Sarasota, I think. Yeah, the, so the, the it's not Barnum too music. far from yeah. there. So they sometimes will go and do like special shows and stuff over there too. Yeah. In addition, there were some Siamese twin sisters that ran a fruit stand. And there were a lot hmm. of other businesses, but these are just sure. like the big ones. There were also three factories there that manufactured Ferris wheels and carousels. So, I mean, this whole area is set up and made specifically to support the carnival people as they travel. And that whole industry. That's cool. Yeah. So enough about Gibtown. I I think you're getting the picture um, of what Gibtown's all about. Yeah. So in the period from, say, 1840 through the 1940s, people began to exhibit themselves if they had physical, mental, or behavioral, we'll say, rarities. Mm -hmm. Sideshows or freak shows, as they were referred to, contained many different forms of entertainment in just one evening. So they would just pull into town and there would be, you know, all this stuff going on. There's a connection between the circus, vaudeville, and the carnivals or the carnies. But And I'll discuss each one of those entertainment venues in a bit. But let's talk first about the 10 and 1 shows. So the 10 and 1 show displayed 10 freaks on a platform in front of an audience as people slowly walked past them. Every now and then, a magician might be thrown into the mix just to give the crowd a break from what they were seeing because some of these freaks were kind of un- unsettling to people who'd never seen anything like this. Honestly, I think a magician is far more unsettling than any physical abnormality. Magicians freak me out. Mm-hmm. So, however, not all performers were natural freaks born with a physical deformity. Some were performance artists who had unusual talents, such as fire eaters, sword swallowers, or people that had, at that time, full body tattoos, which now, I mean, we see that more common, but back then it wasn't the most common thing to see, somebody with a full body tattoo. Yeah, and now I think a lot of those people, too, will do, like, the full body tattoo. Um, There's a couple of people that are, guys that are, like, lizard men that, like, slit their tongues in half as well, and they, like, have scales tattooed all over them. Yeah. So there are modern-day equivalents, too. Yeah, and some people get surgery, and they'll implant horns and stuff like this. Yeah. So some shows were regarded as inappropriate for women and children, and they were categorized as men-only performances. These shows or attractions included the display of exotic or unnatural objects, objects such as pickled punks, which were 
abnormal fetuses preserved in a glass jar. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. During the late 19th century and the early 20th century, freak shows were at the height of their popularity. Although not all abnormalities were real, the attractiveness of freak shows led to their spread and were commonly seen as at amusement parks, circuses, dime museums, and later on in vaudeville. Vaudeville, not so much, but as freak shows started to decline, the entertainers found employment kind of hard to do, and so they kind of turned towards vaudeville. Mm. So there is a direct connection between vaudeville and the freak shows. More popularity came in later years with the amusement park, park industry as it flourished in the United States by expanding the middle class who benefited from short work weeks and they were now making a larger income. There was also a shift in American culture which influenced people to see leisure activities as a necessary and beneficial equivalent to working, thus leading to the popularity of the freak show. So people had more disposable income. And they had more time, yeah. Oh, yeah. So freak shows were just as popular in Europe as they were in the United States, but for the purpose of this show, we're going to mainly talk about the freak shows in the United States, although the similarities run pretty parallel to freak shows on both continents. Mm. The showmen and promoters exhibited all types of freaks. People who appeared either non-white or who had disability were often exhibited as an unknown race or an unknown culture. These unknown races and disabled whites were advertised as being undiscovered humans to attract viewers. For example, hypopituitary dwarfs who tend to be well-proportioned were advertised as lofty. <laughs> yeah, so achondroplastic dwarfs who had heads and limbs which tend to be out of proportion to their trunks were characterized as exotic. Wow. Yeah, those who were armless, legless, or limbless were also characterized in the exotic mode as animal people such as Snake Man, or the Seal Man. There were four ways freak shows were produced and marketed. The first was the oral spiel, or the lecture. So think of the hawker. Okay, so this mm. feature, um, a showman or professor who managed the pr uh, the presentation of the people or of the freaks. I guarantee they you they're not like actual professors, right? They're probably no, just no, like people no, no, that no. wore spectacles and... Yeah. A lab coat. <laughs> yeah. The second was a printed advertisement, usually using long pamphlets or posters or newspaper advertisements of the freak shows. The third step included costuming, choreography performance, and space used to display the show designed to emphasize the things that were considered abnormal about each, each one of the performers. The final stage was a collectible drawing or photograph that portrayed the group of freaks on stage for the viewers to take home. The collectible printed souvenirs were accompanied by recordings of the showman's pitch and the lecturer's yarn or his story, and the professor's exaggerated accounts of what they had witnessed at the show. So I think that fits in exactly yeah. what you concluded right there. That's yeah. pretty neat. Yeah. Exhibits were sometimes authenticated by doctors who used medical terms that uh, many could not comprehend, but which added to the air of authenticity for the, the show or the proceedings, which the people, they were advertising, yeah. trying to lure people in. Which also makes me wonder, were they real doctor, like real medical terms, or were they just words that sounded fancy that they made up? Probably so. They're probably Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. So freak show culture normalized a specific way of thinking about gender, race, uh, sexual aber aberrance, ethnicity, and disability. Today's scholars believe that freak shows contributed significantly to the way American culture views non-conforming bodies. Interesting. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I, you know, everything we talk about, a lot of things we talk about on this show tie into so many things that... History, it's really, I love... It's all connected. I, I love the history aspect of our show and how you can really see how we got to where we are And most today. of the stuff we don't even realize until we oh, research Oh yeah, until somebody it points yeah. it out to you. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's one of my favorite parts about, about doing the show is that you... Yeah. Doing our own research. Right. And educating ourselves. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the showman. The showman was an essential component to the freak show. His talent was in the ability to 
ability to recruit a person with an unusual disfigurement, disability, or a talent and use them as an attraction. What was it? David Letterman used to have stupid human tricks. Oh, stupid human tricks, yeah, Yeah, which is kind of a branch of a freak show, I guess. I wonder how much um, people, like, how much people with disfigurements or unusual talents or whatever um, actively sought out showmen versus how many showmen went looking for them. I don't know. I bet as they pulled into town... I imagine it happened a bunch of different ways. Yeah, I'm you know, sure. You know, they may have pulled into town to ask, hey, anybody fit Weird. the bill? Yeah. Or people may have heard they're coming and think, you know what? I'm having a hard time making a living. Maybe I could make my living with yeah, this. Yeah, there you go. So, it amazes me, too. I didn't realize that most of these things were only for one night. Yeah, yeah. They would pull into town. I mean, they may pull in and then the advertisement would go on. Like a couple days beforehand. And well, they- as, as they would pull in, maybe the train would pull in so the... The showmen and those people who weren't doing the manual labor of setting things up would go into town and do these four methods of advertisement right. to bring people out to where I the just, to where the show like was. So much work for one so night. Work. Yeah. Well, you're going to cover how much they make. Oh yeah, here, yeah. So, they're not working for pennies. Don't yeah, they're, you they're worry. They're not working for pennies. A showman would often have an alter ego or a stage persona, kind of what we did with the table down here. <laughs> that became a uh, public identity. That his audience could recognize. It's a it's a show, and that's why they were called showmen. And they they were performers, actors. So they they knew how to reach out to people. Hmm. Showmen rarely allowed their freaks to be seen before the show in order to preserve the element of the shock and surprise. Hmm. I think today we could say shock and awe, whatever. <laughs> yeah. The larger than life perso- personalities of Victorian air showmen became an art form in and of itself. They created a narrative, the histories for each of their freaks in order to uh, create a drama and heighten the excitement for the audience. So, I mean, there was a lot of preparation that went into this. Oh, yeah. In story, I bet they wish they would have had computers. Oh, I bet that would have made things so much easier. Probably the most famous showman was P.T. Barnum. I think everybody who's around has heard of P.T. Barnum. So P.T. Barnum was considered the father of modern-day advertising, and he was one of the most famous showman managers of the freak show industry. In the United States, he was a major figure in uh, popularizing the entertainment form that became known as the freak show. However, it was very common for Barnum's acts to uh, be schemes and maybe not altogether true. (laughs) Barnum knew full well his tactics were improper and... The ethics behind his business were questionable, just just to say, just throwing it out there. He, <laughs> he knew what he was doing. Yeah, he's a yeah. little sketchy in yes. some aspects. So he once said, I don't believe in duping the public, but I believe in first attracting and then pleasing them. So he, he knew what he was doing. He became very successful. Who was it that became said a, showman. a fool and his money are soon parted? Was that P.T. Barnum? Uh, may have been. <laughs> During the 1840s, Barnum began his museum, which had a um, con- which had constantly rotating act schedules, which included the fat lady, midgets, giants, and other people deemed to be freaks. The museum drew in about 400,000 visitors a year. One of his fake creations was the Fiji mermaid, which he debuted in 1842 prior to traveling to England with Tom Thumb. You can see Fiji mermaids all over the place now. Yeah. Barnum commissioned a colleague to obtain the skull of a monkey and attach it to the skeletal tail of a large fish. And that's how he got his mermaid. Didn't we see that in the Crypto Museum in Maine? They do have, at the the International Cryptozoology Museum, they have quite a bit of P.T. Barnum memorabilia. They do have a Fiji mermaid. I don't know if it is We should have Googled that. I don't... I. I seem to remember it being um, the Fiji mermaid from the movie from um, The Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman. I think they actually have the Fiji mermaid from that movie, like the actual movie prop, but they don't have Barnum's actual Fiji mermaid. But that's still pretty cool to have that movie prop. Uh Uh-huh, it it really is. Tom Thumb may have been P.T. Barnum's most well-known freak, and he helped P.T. to uh, make his name not only for P.T. Barnum, but also for himself. 
When it was all said and done, the average showman was often known to uh, spread the occasional lie in order to swindle a little extra cash from the crowd, and P.T. knew how to do that. The freak shows traveled all around the country, in fact, all of North America, with a, lo- a lot with the circus, but a different way to display a freak show was in what they called a dime museum. Now, in a dime museum, freak show performers were exhibited as an educational display of people with different disabilities. For a cheap admission, viewers were awed with its uh, dioramas, panoramas, uh, georamas, cosmoramas, paintings. (laughs) What are all these ramas? Ramas, (laughs) relics, freaks, stuffed animals, menageries, waxworks, and theatrical performance. No other type of entertainment appealed to such a diverse audience up to this time in history. In the 1870, dime museums grew and grew, hitting their peaks around, let's say, 1880 through the 1890s, being available, like, like we said, from coast to coast. New York City was the dime museum capital of the United States, so probably at that point I'd say of the world, with an entertainment district that included German beer gardens, theaters, vendors, photography studios, and a variety of other amusement institutions. Many freaks were able to separate their stage persona, kind of like I do here with the show, <laughs> yeah, right, from their own identity <laughs> and genuinely enjoyed their newfound fame. Yeah, because we're just full of fame here, Kim. We, we have yes. listeners all across the globe. Yeah, we do. Okay. So. Write to us in all the languages that we can't understand. <laughs> I, I hope y'all know that this is all just talk. <laughs> we are we are not famous by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. And anyway, moving on. So far from <laughs> considering themselves exploited, these freaks became self-consciously complex in their stage presentations. Tom Thumb, for example, is one who made his stage persona a character completely separate from his identity as Charles Stratton, a man who eventually got married, had children of his own. Like an actor, Stratton was able to shed his guise as Tom Thumb at the end of each day. Freaks were perceived as apprehensive, docile, and unhappy with their lot in life. In many cases during the Victorian era, nothing could be further from the truth. Many defended themselves against their managers uh, talking back and demanding raises, and they got them. As early as 1851, it had become popular to sell trading cards of popular freaks throughout England and the United States. Profits from these images went straight into the pockets of the performers themselves as opposed to the showmen. So the showmen weren't getting a, a penny or a dime out of yeah, their extra work were, that they were doing. Freaks were very well paid. I I think of uh, Chang and Ang, who were um, probably some of the most famous freaks of all time. They were the, um, I think they were from China, conjoined twins. And they, I, I always see them dressed like very dapper tuxedos and very well-dressed. And as we're going to find out later, freaks back in the day made more than the average middle-class person makes today. Yeah. Throw that number out. Uh, so typically, um, and we'll talk more a little bit about it when we get to the Styles family, but the average freak show performer made fifty to eighty thousand dollars, and that's in like in the fifties, which is the equivalent to adjusted for inflation. It's over half a million dollars a year today. Yeah. So these these freak show performers, they are raking in the dough. So yeah, they they are. So I don't think they minded. Yeah, the, the attention it, they were getting. Yeah, oh yeah, they, they were making knew. a living for themselves. That's this is their job. This is their full time job. And I mean, they. I don't know for sure how much they were forced to pay for their life on the road. Um, it's interesting that in Gibtown, and I don't think that this is necessarily the case with freak show performers today. I don't think they're that well paid. They might be. I don't know, but. Um, like in Gibtown there, it seems like a lot of people live in trailers and I don't know if that's because they, they spend, you know, six, well, put six it, to eight months on the road. They're not really it, home that much. Put, put it equivalently at this time, they were the big entertainers of the United States. So would they be equivalent to Hollywood, the movie stars that we have today? Almost. But, but the thing is, but that's the thing is like movie stars live in multi million dollar homes. Freaks live in trailers. 
Like they universally, and if you go to Gibtown, um, and when we talk about the Styles family, they lived in a trailer. It wasn't like they lived in a super big, nice house. And I'm guessing part of that is because they, they why spend that much money on a house that you're only going to live in for three to four months out of the year? Maybe when so. they're because the 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 traveling circuit yeah. starts in May, and then it's usually I think it's like May through December. Yeah. Well, so, we don't want to make too many assumptions on where they live. Right. But yeah. I'm just, I, yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're going to talk about Gibtown and, you know, that being kind of like Carney Central, that's a lot of the, a lot of them live in trailers and stuff. And I get it. I mean, I probably, if I wasn't home for more than three or four months out of the year, I probably wouldn't spend a ton of money on my house either. I'd rather live comfortably while I'm traveling. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, whatever. Okay, anyway, anyway. Back to back to our story. Yeah, so Isaac W. Sprague was the American human skeleton. He had one of the most successful trading cards that was out there. At five foot six, Sprague weighed only 43 pounds. As he toured with Barnum in the 1860s, he made a good sum of money off the sale returns from his trading card. You know, similar to a baseball card today. Yeah, that's cool. Some of the more willing performers like Sprague even pinned their own biographies to be published in the Freak Show pamphlets. Although showmen and the freaks would often split the profits from ticket sales and the money made off of the pamphlets or cards, the client was better off in the end. While the showman had to pay for store rentals, heating, and lighting, profits given to the sideshow performers went straight into their hands. So they, they had a good business going for themselves. I mean... They were the show. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. They, they were the show. Yeah. It was It was not uncommon for freaks to be better off in terms of wealth than the majority of the public who came to see them perform. It was no small wonder that both showmen and performers alike agreed that it was better if the freaks were in public displaying their abnormalities for profit rather than struggling to live among everyday people without a job and in complete isolation. Again, Put this in context with the times. Right. This is pre-ADA. So, yeah, so it was very it's, hard. It has not even anything to do with the ADA. It's right. Just, well, but uh, like the ADA, you know, they have handicap accessible. They have wheelchair ramps and stuff. And this is before all of that. So it was hard to just, if you have a deformity, it's hard to just live a normal life because yeah. there was nothing. But I was, I was going more for they were probably hidden and tucked away. Oh yeah, that's true too. That, that, that was the point I was trying to get at right there. Yeah. So by the 1890s, the popularity of freak shows had started to dwindle. A variety of factors played a pivotal role in the almost complete disappearance of the freak shows by the 1950s. In the early years of the 20th century, a rise in disability rights inspired people to turn against sideshows and what they deemed as exploitation um, of these people as entertainment. With and another contributing factor was with railways, steamships. There was more access for people to travel, and the idea of foreign exotic other started to lose its appeal as people left England or the United States to explore the world for themselves. So they they got to go out, and so all this stuff that they're seeing. Yeah, suddenly they, the Snake Man is not so exotic. Yeah, or. No, he's not really a snake man. Yeah, right. I've yeah. been there, okay, yeah. so I didn't see this. So anyway, with the advances in medicine, freaks were faced with um, actual diagnosis. So a lot of them maybe were able to have surgeries or mm-hmm. whatever to to not have the... The malformation. The malformation, yeah. yeah. So as a result, sideshows began losing their appeal as their physical or medical conditions were no longer thought of as... Uh, miraculous or entirely unique some even stayed away from the sideshows for fear of catching the freaks diseases yeah so ridiculous diseases in air quotes by the way yeah the first world war uh, glorified its returning heroes while performing sideshow performers were ignored as they stayed at home performing for reduced price rates while men and women fought on the front many performers turned to vaudeville as the freak show started to fade in popularity. So not so much the freaks, but the performers, the singers, the fire eaters, the sword swallowers, people yeah. like that. Um, vaudeville in its heyday, it, it was a very popular venue, 
Not so much for the freaks, but like I said, for the entertainers. Think of, when we talk of vaudeville, let's think of the late 1880s up through, let's say, the 1920s for the run, the big run of vaudeville. Yeah. And as you can imagine, what started to happen here, that vaudeville went away. So by the 1930s, sideshows were deemed as lacking in dignity and the value of novelty acts was wearing thin. For example, Todd Browning's 1932 American film, Freaks, was universally reviled upon release, featuring real-life freaks such as the limbless Prince Randian, the legless Johnny Eck, and conjoined twins Violet and Daisy Hilton. The plot revolved around a woman who marries a, a midget sideshow performer named Hans, who was played by Harry Earls. But due to the controversy surrounding the film, many scenes were heavily edited and as a result have been, it, it's just been lost over time. Mm. However, Freaks is now considered a cult classic and is still screened around North America at cult film festivals. Many nations took to banning sideshows, including Germany in 1937. Gee, I wonder why. With the rise of television, the entertainment provided by freak shows was all but lost. And, you know, as vaudeville came on, you know, we had radio starting to become. So just people didn't need to yeah, go well, out and, for entertainment. And they could get it. Yeah. Silent films, so yeah, you could go yeah. see them. And more and more people shunned this what they called lowbrow form of entertainment in favor of staying home, watching television, listening to the radio in the comfort of their own home. Unable to land proper jobs and un- when we say proper jobs taking context with you know right. the, this, what we're talking like about not here. as performance artists yeah and unwilling to fade quietly into the background without any money freaks took to performing and traveling carnivals and museums for small amounts of cash the term carny was born with a definite season for carnivals many freaks started to winter over in gibtown in gibtown they could work on their next season shows by painting signs and boards that needed touched up whatever they needed to do for their act and their trailers and their their equipment so we're mm-hmm. talking right now at the towards the end of world war ii yeah so the late 40s they they would make repairs to the rides after a long season on the road and if you remember we said there were companies factories there that made that produced yeah they this this type parts of equipment and all yeah that kind of you stuff. know the the uh Ferris the, wheels, the and Ferris the wheels, yeah, yeah the, the carousels, and yeah, all the that stuff, kind of stuff you see on the midway. Yeah, generally, I think they enjoyed the warm Florida sunshine, and they just went there to relax. But being a carny, it was it was a way of life. Since they were always on the road, they really never fit in where they traveled. Their friends and community were the people that they traveled with. The other the other entertainers that were there that they would go back and winter with. It gibbed him. And there's a really good documentary on Prime that we watched last night. Called It's called Gibtown. It's it's a little bit older. It was probably made like in the 90s. Um, but it's it's really interesting. It's not free, but it's only 99 cents. If you're more interested in kind of what this uh, town and kind of like their camaraderie and stuff looks like, I, it's a really good video. You should definitely check it out. Yeah. So in many instances, it became the family business. Being a carny meant... You had to you had to be a jack of all trades. You had to be a performer, and if that was your skill, you had to be a mechanic. You had to work on the equipment if that was your skill. Um, you had to be able to fix the ride. You had to be able to run the rides for the midway. You had to be able to drive the truck to get it there. Uh, you had to be able to sew to make the costumes for yourself or for your animal act. In many cases, um, it, it would turn out that the wives would sell tickets so as the men were setting up the rides and setting up all the stuff, many of the wives would sell the tickets and eventually they would become part of the show for yeah. whatever, as the singers, entertainers, whatever. But, you know, everyone had their job and it all had to work because you move into town, you set up for the carnival yeah, for a couple You don't have much days, time. And then you pack up and you move on to the next city. Coney Island in New York remains one of the few providers of the sideshow entertainment left in the world, although well past its heyday during the early 20th century, Coney Island remains a staple of the type of old-fashioned freak shows that were once so popular in the United States. Since 1983, sideshows by the seashore has been a popular tourist attraction. 
and also boasts the last true 10 and one freak show in the world. Up until uh, 2017, Venice Beach had a big freak show too, but I think that they're closed down. Um, Sideshows by the Seashore is still a thing. It's As far as I know, it's closed down currently, but only because of coronavirus. Um, their 2020 season was canceled. Um, they don't have anything up on their website for the 2021 season, but they're still, I mean, it's still up and active like on Coney Island's website. So I would anticipate that once, you know, everybody gets vaccines and things start to get back in the swing of regularity, um, that sideshows by the seashore is going to open up again. I I hope so. I mean, I don't have any plans on going to New York <laughs> anytime soon. But if you do, go but, see if, if yeah. they're open and go check them out. Yeah, well, despite their diminished popularity, the history of the freak shows continues to make people curious. While freak shows may be pretty much a thing of the past, being a carny is alive and well. Oh, yeah. I mean, we see them every summer as we attend our local festivals, our county and our state fairs. Oddity shops, which we went to one Saturday here in Fairborn, Ohio. I love oddities. Yeah, they're, they're sprinkled all over the country. It just proves that people are still interested in seeing the different things that are out there. I mean, yeah. have you ever been to Ripley's Museum? Oh, they're all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so that kind of is the, the history. background. Yeah, we, we took like carnies, 45 minutes to get to the of, background. Of carnies and everything else. Yeah, now if you'll remember from the beginning of the episode, one of these freaks, Grady Styles Jr., began performing with his father in shows in 1944 at the age of seven. Um, so we're kind of at the beginning of the decline of the freak show here. But when the Styles family wasn't touring, they lived in Gibtown. And like I said, they were making anywhere from fifty dollars to $80,000 a season in 1950s money. So that's a lot. Uh, and although Grady Sales Jr. tried to play it off like he didn't care that people gawked at him and made fun of him, it still had to take its toll on him when he was growing up. And like I mentioned at the beginning, I can, of, yeah, yeah, as a young boy, I can yeah, imagine. especially I mean, when you're first when you're seven, it's probably fun. Like you don't recognize that people are making fun of you. But imagine as a teenager, that's got to be really hard. And uh, and like I, mean, I said, he he was in a wheelchair because he had ectrodactyly in his hands and his feet. And he was super strong, which is going to come into play later in the story. Now, when he was a young man, Grady fell in love with a 19 year old woman named Mary Teresa who worked. (laughs) Well, hang on. It's, it's not as good as you might think. Um, Mary Teresa worked the carnival circuit as a grifter. So as just kind of a, you know, like, like what you said, maybe the, the people that would hawk tickets or like put up posters and stuff. Um, she had no deformities or anything. And, uh, the two married in 1958 and they had two daughters together. One of which inherited her father's ectrodactyly. That daughter, Kathy became a part of the act and they all toured together as the lobster family. Now, eventually, the years of torment from onlookers got to Grady, and he started drinking. Mm. He was a mean drunk, and neighbors testified to hearing frequent screams from the Stiles home in Gibsonton. It was no secret that Grady Stiles Jr. would become intoxicated and then physically abuse and mistreat his family regularly. He would use that upper body strength that he had to violently throw himself on the floor and then use his claw-like fingers as dangerous weapons to choke, beat, and slam his wife and children in the face. Okay, not a good thing here. No, uh, their skin and their eyes were often targeted. Whoa. And although Mary Teresa testified that her husband was a great guy when he was not drinking... She also confessed that really only amounted to approximately two hours a day between oh. 8 and 10 a.m. So, yeah, Grady he Stiles. He up for two hours? Yeah, so he's really a piece of work. Um, Kathy, his daughter, describes Grady as, quote, Satan himself and says that she and her sister Donna were never allowed to go out on the midway without gloves on so carnival goers wouldn't get a peek at their condition. And we kind of talked about that a little mm-hmm. bit earlier. Now, Donna didn't have ectrodactyly. She was kind of the the favorite of the family because she was quote unquote normal. So even though Kathy was the moneymaker, Donna was like the apple of her father's eye. Um, 
And during one violent episode, while Grady was in the midst of attacking his wife, Kathy, who was pregnant at the time, attempted to intervene by rolling his wheelchair in between her parents. But that only made Grady even more angry. And he turned towards Kathy and beat her so badly that she went into early labor. And the baby named Misty survived, but she was also born with ectrodactyly and she was pretty premature. Now, by 1973, Mary Teresa had had enough of the abuse and she came to the decision after Grady again assaulted, she she decided to divorce him after um, he again assaulted her. But this time, using his so-called claws, he grotesquely removed her birth control device from inside her. I imagine that was maybe a diaphragm or something at the time. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, I don't know a lot about uh, you yeah, know 1970s birth control, but I mean it was a very violent and aggressive and bloody and brutal attack. Uh, and of course, she divorced Grady at that point. She got remarried um, to a guy named Harry Glenn Newman, who was a midget known on the carnival circuit as the world's smallest man. And Grady took his girls, um, which seems kind of odd to me that he would want to take the daughters. I, although I guess Kathy was a moneymaker, so that kind of makes sense too. But uh, he took the girls and he moved back to his hometown of Pittsburgh. So even though uh, the family kind, they spent time when he was growing up, they spent time in Gibtown. He was born and spent a lot of his childhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, so he took them and he moved um, back to Pittsburgh where he also remarried. And his new wife, Barbara, gave birth to a son with ectrodactyly named Grady Stiles III. So in 1978, Grady's 17-year-old Donna, now this is the one without ectrodactyly, who he absolutely doted on. She was like daddy's little girl. Um, She begged her dad to marry her boyfriend, Jack Lane. And Grady... Wait, say that again? She... So in in, uh, Grady's... Grady Stiles' daughter, Donna, she was... She was born born normally. She didn't have ectrodactyly or anything. And he absolutely doted on her. Yeah. No, get to the other part. She begged her dad to marry her boyfriend. She begged her dad that she could marry her boyfriend. Yes. Not that. No, not to. Okay. No, she didn't beg her dad to, for her dad to that's, marry her that's, boyfriend. That's no. what you said. This is in 1978. <laughs> No, she, Donna begged to marry her okay. boyfriend, Jacqueline. Got, got it. I just wanted to make that clear because that's <laughs> yes. not what she said. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So Donna really wanted to marry her boyfriend. Um, Grady strongly opposed the idea, but Donna told him that she was pregnant, which was a lie, um, but that she, if she wasn't allowed to marry Jack, then the two would run away together. Um, so, daddy, I love him. Uh but now Grady was not about to give up the control that he had over his daughter and the rest of his family. And he threatened to kill Jack. Oh yeah. However, Donna was insistent. And on the night before the wedding, Jack and Grady met to talk things over. Now it's a little unclear how everything went down, but there's speculation that Grady kind of enticed Jack over to the house with a hint that he was ready to agree to the marriage. Regardless of the premise, when Jack showed up, Grady was sitting on the front porch with a shotgun. Without hesitation and in front of Donna, Grady shot Jack twice and he died in Donna's arms. Oh, man. She later recounted that, quote, my dad was just sitting on the front porch smiling. He said, I told you I would kill him. So that is some cold-blooded stuff right there. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that was 1978. In 1979, Grady Styles was arrested and he was put on trial. But don't forget, he's a showman and he's a performer. He pleaded not guilty, claiming self-defense. His defense team played on Grady's deformities and his poor health, arguing that because of his excessive alcoholism, by this point he had cirrhosis of the liver... And his, in his uh, three-pack-a-day smoking habit, which had given him emphysema. I didn't do it. Right? He couldn't survive in prison. And he was, pr- they're probably right. This is 1979. There wasn't a lot of great health care in prison at the time. Um, Grady took the stand. He faked tears. He faked remorse. And the jury bought it hook, line, and sinker. So they did find him guilty of third-degree murder. and But he was sentenced to 15 years 
probation did not serve a single day in prison for the brutal murder of Jacqueline. Three packs a day. Did he have, I bet he was having emphysema issues too, maybe. Well, yeah, that's what he, oh, he had emphysema. Yeah. Okay. But he, he didn't serve a single day for murder, even hmm. though they found him guilty. Like there's no question that he did it. There were witnesses. 15 years probation. Yeah. Uh, now, in 1989... Yeah, I don't know what to say about that I, one. It's crazy to me. In 1989, after each had divorced their second spouses, Mary Teresa and Grady Stiles crossed paths again, and for whatever reason, she agreed to remarry him. He promised her that his drinking days were over, that he was a changed man. In reality, things had only gotten worse, and his children had been bearing the brunt of Grady's violent anger. Uh, Mary said it only took her about two weeks to realize that not much had changed. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter what type of performer we yeah. hear about this many, many times in society oh, yeah. right now. Yeah. He's, I'm a change man. I stopped drinking. She's like two weeks later, he was the same guy. Yeah. Um, presumably she stuck around for her daughters. So while she'd been married to Harry, Mary had given birth to Harry Glenn Newman Jr., and while her son had no deformities, he did have a sideshow talent, which was driving spikes up his nose, which is oh. like your least favorite sideshow oh. talent. Uh, no. Um, uh, nope. So, Grady Styles Jr., Grady Styles III, the Styles girls. How, Kim, how do you even learn that you could do this? I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, if you're, if you're uh, Harry Newman Jr., like you're growing up and your, your mom is a carnival sideshow worker. Your dad is the world's smallest man. You're born into the sideshow slash circus circuit. And even though you don't have any deformalities or deformities, then you... You've seen this before. Yeah, I you mean, find something to I've do seen, to earn money. I've seen people eat chicken noodle soup and start laughing, and the noodle would come out their nose. I used but to have... Not, not driving a spike no, up your nose. Nope. But there's all kinds of ways you can train yourself to do... Um, when I was in high school, I had my lip pierced, and I learned how to... I figured out how to take out the piercing, and I could shoot water through the hole in my lip. So for entertainment, talent. for we, entertainment You think we purposes. can make a fortune off of you doing <laughs> yeah, that? Not now, it's closed up. But um, but people will find any weird way they can, anything that you can think of to make money. And he's probably seen this before. Oh, yeah, oh, I'm you know, sure. John probably said, hey, kid, come here. Yeah, me, somebody let me, trained him. Let me him. show you how to do I'm this. Sure, yeah, somebody taught him how to do it. So, um, so after Mary and uh, Grady got back together, Grady Sales Jr., Grady Sales III, Styles Girls and Harry Newman Jr. and Mary all went on tour together. They promoted themselves as the 10 acts in one, like the 10 on one. What, what yep. was it called? Um, 10 in one. 10 in one. And they featured a human pin cushion, a human blockhead, which was Harry, um, Burmese <laughs> pythons, a gorilla lady illusionist, and various animal oddities. Um, so, I mean, it was kind of a big deal to own your own 10 in one. But Grady Styles Jr. was still the main attraction. He would dive underwater. You would catch fish with his quote-unquote claws. And there was an act depicting his mother's horrified reaction to his birth. Allegedly, he would perform drunk and he would lunge at the audience to scare them. So he was he was just a jerk. Like, honestly, there's no other word for it. He was just mean. I shouldn't laugh at that. Mary said that her husband would sexually abuse her. He tried to smother her with a pillow. And one morning woke her up with a knife to her throat, just reeking of whiskey. And by 1992, she was exhausted. Understandably, I mean, this has been going on for decades. Uh, when she commented to her son, Harry, that, quote, something had to be done, he took it to heart. Now, it's a little unclear whether Mary or Harry hired him but their 17-year-old neighbor, Christopher Wyant, was paid $1,500 to kill Grady Stiles. One night, while Grady was sitting in his underwear watching TV, Christopher picked up a 32 Colt automatic rifle, walked over to the Stiles trailer in Gibsonton, and shot him twice in the head at point-blank range. Mm. Now, unlike in Grady's murder trial, Christopher Wyant was found guilty of second-degree murder after only an hour of jury deliberation. Yep, he did it. And he was sentenced to 27 years. So no 15-year probation for this one. 27 years in prison. 
Uh, Mary Stiles and Harry Newman Jr. were both arrested as well. During the trial, all of Grady Stiles' children testified on Mary's behalf. Um, I think even his son with Barbara testified on his stepmom's behalf. They said that their father was a monster. They all regularly feared for their lives. That bit about him being Satan incarnate that Kathy mentioned, um, that came into play. Uh, Eventually, Harry Glenn Newman Jr. was charged with first-degree murder, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Um, if Interestingly, if he had done it himself instead of hiring a hitman, he probably would have had a reduction in his sentence hmm. um, because then there was the extra added uh, murder conspiracy for hire conspiracy. Or, yeah. yeah, Mary Stiles, unfortunately, didn't get much sympathy for her abuse. She did get a reduced sentence, but... She was still sentenced to 12 years in prison. Yeah, after, life's just not fair. After being convicted of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and manslaughter with a firearm. Um, and Grady Stiles Jr. has a mixed reputation in the carnival community. They acknowledge, carnies and, and freaks acknowledge that, yes, he was a terrible husband and father. But he was a shrewd businessman who went from being a, in a sideshow to owning and running one. So... Hmm. Interesting story. So there you go. There's the story of Grady Styles Jr. and his and his. Uh, okay, so now I'm feeling guilty because when we walked out of Best Buy the other day, yeah. Kim, Kim was carrying the packages and it set the alarm off. And my first reaction was <laughs> to turn around and point. It's her. It's her. But they. What did they do though? They laughed. They were like, "It's fine. Just go. You're Just fine. Just go." But what do you think? I. I this is unbelievable to me. Yeah, he but he used his ectrodactyly to get. He literally got away with murder. Yeah, but I mean, we hear this all the time of abused women, abused people who eventually snap and they end up killing their abuser. But they're the ones that are prosecuted it's because to me. because it's not self defense. You can't wait a week after the event has happened or 20 years, or 25 20 years, years. And, yeah. and kill the person. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we hear this, this type of story all the time. It's just, I think more interesting because of who they were. Yeah. It just amazes me that he used his deformity to literally get away with murder, brutally beat his entire family for decades, almost killed his unborn grandchild. It's, but like I said, it's and not. And they're the ones that are punished. But like I said, it's not an unheard of story. It's not. It's just, oh, it just makes me angry. Oh. Anyway, so anyway. there you go. There's our story of carnival sideshows and Grady Sales Jr. Lobster Boy murderer who ended up murdered himself. Performer. Yeah. And now I think it's interesting too that he and and I don't think this was intentional. I, I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but the fact that he shot Donna's fiance twice and killed him with a rifle, and he was shot twice with a rifle and died. I'm sh- I don't th- I'm like ninety nine percent sure even. that was unintentional, but it, there's some sort of poetic justice in it. Yeah, I mean we can't even speculate on yeah, that. Yeah, I'm sure that was completely unintentional. But interesting story. So there you go. All right, so let's on move that on to the business <laughs> of the day. How do you get hold of us? You can go to anhouroofyourlife.com and listen to this week's episode. You can tell all your friends to go to anhouroofyourlife.com. That's the easiest way to listen to any you of the shows. You can get a list of all the episodes Absolutely. from you can, you can reach out to us there. If you prefer to email us directly and not go to the website, you can find us at alosthour at gmail.com. But why would you do that? Because you can go straight to the website and hit chat and it's going to open up and send the email to us. Yep. If you want to check us out on the socials, there are some things on um, Facebook and Instagram and maybe a couple on Twitter uh, that we don't necessarily have on the website. So Facebook, it's um, an hour of your life, Instagram, an hour of your life, Twitter, a lost hour. And please, if you write to us, write to us in English. Or or at least make sure, like run it through Google Translate first to make yeah. sure there's not anything. Like said, there's that, just one word we cannot figure out. Google Translate's not that bad. We just, it doesn't do slang. So, so I guess that's the other thing. Either write to us in English or don't use slang because we don't get it. Yeah. We, we anyway. sound super pretentious saying that, but. I mean, we want to write back. We do. And, and I speak 
Steve speaks pretty fluent German. I can get by on Spanish. I'm real rusty with French. Anything outside of those two and a half languages, we we just don't know it. Sorry. So anyway, That's thank it. you for listening to this week's episode. Yeah, we got some good stuff coming up. Several interview shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. Yes, we, we think they're going to be interesting. I know they're going to be interesting. I, I love yeah. interview shows. I do, I do too. I like that air of unpredictability. Anything else, Kim? I think that's it. All right. So, from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include good old Wikipedia, The Guardian, BailBondsNow.org, The LA Times, Historic Mysteries, All That's Interesting, and Things Said and Done on WordPress.com. And remember, kids, crime doesn't pay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>